Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 5, The Gulf. I'm Brandon Seal. 242 mostly naked men in five very crude rafts floated along the coastline of the Florida Panhandle in late September 1528. They were packed in almost 50 men to a raft, with just enough room for each man to lay down if he didn't mind rubbing shoulders with his neighbor. They didn't dare venture far from the shore in their 30-foot-long vessels, since those vessels rode barely six inches above the waterline and wouldn't have fared well in open seas. To the extent they could, the flotilla of rafts stayed in waist-deep shallows, carried along by their sails that they had fashioned out of their shirts and pants. For the first seven days of the Narvaez Expeditionary's Gulf Voyage, things went surprisingly well. A couple of days in, they came into possession of some abandoned canoes that some terrified natives had left behind when they saw them. The expeditionaries lashed these canoes to their rafts like outriggers, which gave them more stability and helped buoy them a few more inches above the waterline. And they also found that when those natives had abandoned their canoes, they had left behind some dried fish, which was a welcome addition to the expeditionaries' already tiresome diet of corn and dried horse meat. Yet as the rafts plodded along through October of 1528, there were growing reasons to be concerned. All along the coast, smoke signals began to rise up as the tribes began to warn their brethren of the starving, grabby gangs of men floating toward their shores. As a result, most of the natives pulled back their lodges and supplies back into the interior, denying the expeditionaries any chance to reprovision. Accordingly, the corn and horse meat on the rafts soon began to run out. And then, an even more serious problem presented itself. To store fresh water for this voyage, the expeditionaries had repurposed horse hides, turning them into giant canteens. They had done this, however, without adequate time or chemicals to properly cure the hides. And so after just a few weeks at sea, their horsehide canteens began to rot, contaminating their freshwater, or at the very least, making it taste like decomposing horse flesh. They sailed the last five days of October without drinking anything. They kept pushing on, however. Most of the men on these rafts still believed they were just a few dozen miles away from the so-called Rio de las Palmas, the modern-day Soto La Marina in Tamaulipas, Mexico. But eventually, some of the men couldn't take the thirst anymore. Five of them resorted to drinking salt water and paid with their lives for their mistake. Desperate now, the sad flotilla put ashore somewhere near modern-day Biloxi, Mississippi, to search for fresh water. They found nothing. As they boarded their rafts, in the distance, they saw a pair of Indians in a canoe. The expeditionaries called to the natives, signaling that they wanted to trade for fresh water. Lord knows what they would have given for it. The natives, however, wanted nothing to do with these pitiful strangers and began to paddle away. According to the expedition's treasurer, Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, quote, we felt so abandoned and lost that there wasn't a one of us who didn't expect to die at any moment, end quote. It's one of only a handful of times in the narrative when we'll ever see Cabeza de Vaca despairing, and yet he very deliberately refuses to dwell on it or indulge his modern reader's prurient interest in seeing his suffering. Quote, I pass over this episode quickly because I don't think there's any particular need to tell all the miseries and hardships we endured Considering the situation we were in, and the little hope of salvation that we had, each one may imagine what could have happened to us, end quote. 
This is actually a recurring pattern in Cabeza de Vaca's account, his refusal to dwell on his most hopeless moments. Maybe it's an indication of the depth of the trauma that the ordeal inflicted on him. Or maybe it's just an insight into the psychological tools that he used to survive this incredible adventure. Out of a lack of any other options, the Narvaez expeditionaries decided to pursue the Indian pair that had fled from them. It was risky, and frankly, it risked provoking an attack if those natives had any relatives nearby who might feel threatened by the sight of a couple hundred sunburned and bearded bags of bones descending upon them. As the expeditionaries rounded a spit of land, they suddenly got more than they had bargained for. They were met by a veritable fleet of native canoes heading toward them. These Native Americans were tall and well-built, and yet they carried no weapons, perhaps realizing that in the expeditionary's current state, they posed them no threat. The natives signaled to the expeditionaries to follow them, which they willingly did. Following their new guides, the expeditionaries rode their way further into the bay until at last they saw a fairly sizable native village. Here, the expeditionaries eagerly disembarked and found waiting for them on the shore jars of water and cooked fish. The village chief then came out to greet the visitors. He invited Narvaez back to his lodge. The two men and their chief lieutenants sat together and traded gifts. Apparently, Narvaez was no longer above trading with the natives as equals. Yet between the natives' gracious welcome that afternoon and what happened that evening, something went horribly wrong. Cabeza de Vaca offers no clue as to what provoked the turn of events, but as suddenly and as inexplicably as these Indians had come out to meet the expeditionaries, that night they turned on them. From all sides and all at once, the natives assaulted their guests. They attacked the sick laying prone on the beach. They burned their own lodges where they had put up expeditionaries to rest. They even threw themselves into a brutal hand-to-hand melee in the chief's lodge where a surprised Narvaez took a rock to the face. The confused expeditionaries retreated as quickly as they could back to their rafts. Arrows and stones rained down upon these men, who just a few moments before thought they had finally found relief from the privations of their miserable raft voyage. The 50 healthiest members of the expedition formed a defensive perimeter there on the beach and tried to protect the rafts while the sick and wounded were being boarded. Yet the natives continued attacking with such ferocity that the rear guard couldn't safely leave their positions. And soon, nearly every one of those 50 had been wounded as well even as they continued to hold the line against three different assaults by native warriors. Something to recall is that the vast majority of Narvaez's expeditionaries were not soldiers. Yes, they lived in a violent age, and so like later European settlers on the American continent, they weren't strangers to conflict. But most of these expeditionaries had no military training, and certainly no sense of tactics. And Narvaez, recall, had just been wounded, and seems to have been taken out of the action. And so, in a lull in the fighting following the third assault, when perhaps it seemed like the natives had exhausted their supply of arrows, Cabeza de Vaca and Captain Andres Dorantes stepped up. They were each veterans of the wars in Europe, with experience commanding men in combat, and they devised a plan. Dorantes and two of the other captains snuck off into the darkness, even as the natives had begun to form up for a fourth assault. Before they could launch it, however, Dorantes and his force struck the natives' rear. It caught the natives entirely off guard, 
and undermine their confidence in their own position. Their order collapsed, and they dissolved into the night, leaving the expeditionaries in peace, but in disarray. The events near Biloxi really scrambled the circuits of the Narvaez expeditionaries, because it seemed to show them how poorly equipped they were for understanding this continent. It seemed now that they couldn't even trust their ability to read the intentions of friendly natives. Of course, maybe the whole thing had always been a trap for them. But then why would the natives have bothered feeding the Narvaez expeditionaries instead of just attacking them on their shoddy rafts? Maybe Narvaez had committed some faux pas that he didn't even realize when he was talking to the chief. The fact is, though, we don't know. And in general, I find Cabeza de Vaca to be curiously unjudgmental about this entire episode. You sort of expect him to either lambast the natives for their treachery or Narvaez for bungling the situation. But he doesn't do either. He simply describes what happened with no color commentary or pejorative language toward anyone. I have two theories of how to interpret this. One, I take it as a sign of just the utter strangeness of this entire continent to these Castilians. The Aztecs down in central Mexico were more similar to Castilian society than these hunter-gatherer bands on the Gulf Coast were, even to the Aztecs. And so in that sense, it's not really a surprise that cultural misunderstandings should be the norm and not the exception. And my second theory is that I think this might be yet another clue as to how Cabeza de Vaca processes things that he doesn't understand. In sort of a similar way to how he refuses to dwell on traumatic experiences, maybe he refuses to dwell on the really stark cultural differences between himself and the people he meets. Don't get me wrong, he doesn't ever really doubt the supposed superiority of his own culture, yet he employs the tools of his culture primarily to sustain himself, not as standards by which to criticize the new people he meets. This is why people have referred to him sometimes as the first anthropologist, for his ability to observe cultures without immediately judging them by the standards of his own. This non-judgmental piece, however, of Cabeza de Vaca's character is I think something that really helps keep him sane during this ordeal. Because the natives of the Gulf Coast would continue to confound the Narvaez expeditionaries. Just a few days after fleeing Biloxi, the expeditionaries came across some different Indians in canoes. Again, they begged them for water. In their frantic retreat to the beach in Biloxi, they hadn't had a chance to collect any water for the voyage. In this instance, the expeditionaries undertook a muddled negotiation with these Indians in the canoes, Sure, we'd be happy to help, the natives signed back. Just give us your jars and we'll bring some water back to you. This made the expeditionaries uneasy. If they lost their jars, they'd have no way to carry water for the rest of their sea voyage. How about we just send some of our people with the pots, they proposed instead. The natives accepted their counterproposal, but the expeditionaries imposed one more condition. Two natives would need to stay behind as hostages for the return of the expeditionary's men and their pots. Hostage exchanges, like gift-giving, seemed to be another pretty near-universal form of diplomacy, and so the natives accepted, swapping two of their own for two expeditionaries. Later that evening, the Indians returned with the jars filled with water, but without the two expeditionaries who had gone with them. The rest of the expeditionaries on the rafts were furious, and they demanded their companions be returned. Just then, their two Indian hostages threw themselves into the water and tried to swim back to shore, but the expeditionaries managed to hold on to them. More canoes began to appear, however, and threatened to cut off the expeditionaries' access to the larger gulf. 
the native canoes began to encircle them and soon began lobbing stones and spears into the tightly massed men on their rafts. Fortunately for them, the wind picked up at just that moment, and the expeditionaries captured it in their sails and retreated to open waters. Of course, this meant leaving their jars of water and their companions behind. A later expedition would discover that these two had met a gruesome end. Though to be fair, we hear no more of the expeditionaries' Indian hostages either, and should probably assume that they met their end here as well. A few days later, sometime perhaps in the first week of November 1528, the Narvaez expeditionaries rounded a point and realized that they were looking at the mouth of a massive, massive river. It was, in fact, larger than any river they had ever seen, so large that they might at first have thought it was simply another enormous bay. Yet as they reached down into the water and felt the current pushing them violently away from the coastline, they realized that this river's outflow actually had turned the saltwater fresh for miles all around them. The Narvaez expedition had just found the Mississippi River. It's one of the few geographic markers we can pretty certainly identify from Cabeza de Vaca's account. With some effort, the expeditionaries beached their crafts on a delta island and rested for a day or two. Surely they debated where they were and what this river meant. Maybe this was that other river that some contemporary maps place near the present-day Rio Grande. Maybe they were finally within reach of the Rio de las Palmas, or even better, the Rio Panuco, just to the south. Of course, now they had to cross this river. After filling their jars with water and foraging for a little firewood, the expeditionaries pointed their vessels into the current, trimmed their sails, and took up their oars they began to paddle. They could see the other shoreline across the mouth of the mighty river, but almost immediately, they felt the ocean pulling them away. Up until now, they had kept to the shallows, which not only provided some comfort to the majority of the expeditionaries who couldn't swim, but also allowed them to push their crafts along like gondoliers when they needed to. Well, this was immediately out of the question for crossing the Mississippi. Here, they couldn't even sound the bottom at all, even with a 180-foot sounding line. So while the crews paddled maniacally, a few, probably, began to realize that a 180-foot deep wall of water that turned the salty ocean fresh was never going to let a fleet of rickety rafts across. And just so you can appreciate how wide and how powerful the Mississippi is and how tough these men were, the Narvaez expeditionaries battled the river for two days and nights, nonstop, it was a Greek, almost Sisyphean torment. 24 hours ago, they were dying of thirst. Now, they were flooded with so much water that they couldn't move. And then, at the end of the second night, a norther blew in, dropping the temperature and pushing against their sails further and further from land. There's no telling how far into the gulf the men's rafts were ultimately carried, but suffice it to say that after their two days of battling the current, they were now entirely adrift in a merciless sea which they had no ability to navigate. And when the men on the rafts awoke that third morning, what they saw around them would have been even more terrifying than anything they had imagined before. Because not only had they lost sight of land, they now lost sight of each other. Cabeza de Vaca records that he could just barely, faintly, make out the governor's raft, and perhaps a third raft on the horizon, but that was it. Recall, too, that all these men had been on reduced rations for almost the entirety of their two-month voyage, if we can call it that. Now, 
They were down to just a handful of uncooked corn each day for each man. And the last two days of effort had exhausted what small stores of strength remained in them. Nevertheless, Cabeza de Vaca ordered the men on his raft to row toward Narvaez's, and they eventually managed to draw up within shouting distance. No closer, however. It seems Narvaez wouldn't quite let Cabeza de Vaca pull entirely alongside. Before Cabeza de Vaca could even speak, it was Narvaez who shot him a question, anticipating the words that were probably about to come out of Cabeza de Vaca's mouth. What do you think we should do? Narvaez asked his treasurer. We should link our rafts together and go after the third raft, Cabeza de Vaca responded, quote, so that our three boats might follow whatever path that God wished to place us on, end quote. Impossible, Narvaez shot back. Our only hope, he continued, is to paddle for shore. Forget the third raft and the fourth and the fifth. If the men on my raft don't reach land in a day or two, they'll all die of starvation. And without waiting for a response, Narvaez set his men to rowing. Cabeza de Vaca told his men to do the same and tried to keep up. But the hardier men that Narvaez had pre-selected for his own vessel began to pull ahead. Throw us a rope, Cabeza de Vaca called out, asking to be towed along. Impossible, Narvaez shot back again. It'll take all of our efforts just to reach shore ourselves this evening. What are we supposed to do then, Cabeza de Vaca asked. Narvaez answered him, quote, This is no time for one man to order another man around. Each man should do what seems right to him and save his own life, which is what I plan to do, end quote. In short, it was every man for himself at this point. Symbolically and in actuality, the Narvaez expedition was no more. Cabeza de Vaca ordered his men to lay down their oars. Some of his men had already begun to pass out from their efforts to reach Narvaez's little craft. It was too much to ask of his men to kill themselves rowing after a commander that had just abdicated his command and in a direction that they weren't even sure promised salvation. And so for three days more, the men on Cabeza de Vaca's raft drifted along, saying little, resigned to being carried wherever the Gulf of Mexico might decide. A storm struck them on the fourth day, a storm so strong it nearly overturned their raft, yet it merits barely a mention in Cabeza de Vaca's narrative. So indifferent was he to his fate by this point. Quote, With little difficulty, one could count our bones, and we looked to ourselves like death itself. End quote. By the end of the fourth day, their bodies began to shut down. Quote, the men began to faint, such that when the sun set, all those in my raft were slumped over on top of one another, with many so close to death that only a few remained conscious. End quote. By sunset on the fourth day, only five of Cabeza de Vaca's 49-man crew could stand up. By midnight, only Cabeza de Vaca and the helmsman remained conscious. Then, two hours after nightfall, the helmsman asked Cabeza de Vaca to take the tiller. He was done, he said, certain he would die that very night. Cabeza de Vaca understood the sentiment. Quote, I would have happily taken death in that moment, rather than to see so very many men in so sad a state, end quote. Eventually, too, Cabeza de Vaca closed his eyes, quote, resting a bit without resting, as sleep was the furthest thing from my mind, end quote. And yet, the Narvaez expeditionary's time at sea was coming to an end, not, however, in the manner that any of them would have anticipated. On the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca... 
thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode at rivardreport.com, home for nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Also, please go like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. We're telling old stories in new ways here, but a story's power comes from its being shared with others. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache, is composed by Kevin Graham and available on Soundstrike. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, to Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliff Collection at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about the sources we've used in this series, as well as about us generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.